Thank you, Kobe, for sharing uh, yeah, his wonderful words that remind us that God is good and that God is indeed here with us. Um, yeah, God is faithful, and he's the God of broken people, needy people, hurting people. He's a God of, of, of all, and so we worship him. Last week, we started on this uh, series asking this question, what in the, what's wrong with our world? Um, you could tell that our world is messed up, uh, but what did God do about it? What's wrong with the world, and, and what did God do about it? That's kind of a couple things that we've been looking at over the past, uh, yeah, this will be the second week in this. Um, last week, I told you about one of my favorite movies, a movie called The Village, uh, this great, uh, and how I like fell in love with these like epic plot twists that kind of leave your jaw on the ground and like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened. Today I want to uh, continue in this series, but I want to tell you about another one of my favorite plot twists. Not a, it's not a movie, it's not a TV show, but it was one particular episode of a TV show that I watched when uh, I was a kid. Did any of you ever watch a show called The Judge? <laughs> Anyone watch The Judge? Like, this is really, <laughs> you did? Really? Um, she may or may not have seen it, but it's a show that came out. Uh, it was in production from 1986 to 1993, and it was one of those like courtroom drama TV shows, uh, almost like the People's Court, almost like the, uh, Judge Judy, but um, the Honorable Judge Robert Franklin presided over all of these trials, uh, and it was a dramatization. So real live court cases, real court cases that actually happened, but instead of the real plaintiff, defendant, lawyers, and, and bailiff and stuff, they were actors, and so they would read the, the, the court case, and then they would, like, dramatically act it out. It was, like, really cool. There was this one episode, of, and they, they chose the most, like, weirdest, craziest, most controversial, and, and just far-out cases that you could ever find, and they would put them on TV, and it's really fun. The one episode that I remember was, it was a murder trial, <laughs> and uh, this lady was being convicted of murdering some dude or some uh, woman. I forget what it was. Uh, but you're watching the trial. She's like sweet little lady, uh, super kind. She wasn't, uh, she wasn't old. She was kind of like uh, in her 30s or 40s, but very kind. And the whole time she's like very respectful, polite, as they're bringing up all the charges and all of the evidence. And uh, they're like, what do you have to say? She's like, I didn't do it, Your Honor. I didn't do it. I have an alibi. You know, I wasn't there. Uh, I've never seen this person before. And throughout the 30 or 60 minutes, I forget how, however long it was, they're mounting up all of this evidence against her, but it doesn't seem to be checking out. I mean, it's, a, it's clearly like, okay, it seems like if they're right, then it's, it's open shut. But the reality is that she seems too sweet. She seems too nice. Seems like there's no way that she could have done something like that. And so as it gets to like, you know, 8.53 or something and the show ends at 9 o'clock, you're thinking, okay, they've got to come to some kind of a resolution here. It's like, I didn't do it, Your Honor. I would never do such a thing. I'm, I'm just a kind-hearted whatever, whatever, whatever. And then as... Uh, it's getting more and more testy and feisty. She's like, I didn't do it. And then she gets like, she gets like really intense. And then she puts her head down. She's like, I didn't do it. <laughs> she puts her head down. And then after about three or four seconds, she picks her head up. And it's the same person, but she's got this like twisted look on her face. And then her voice changes from this like sweet, beautiful young lady to this like, angry, snarling, masculine voice. And she's like, but I did it. <laughs> I killed him because I wanted his money or something like that. Uh, and it turns out that this, this lady had multiple personality disorder. Hey, she, was, she was maybe demon-possessed, whatever it was. But she I didn't do it, I didn't do it. But I did it. It's like all crazy. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what in the world? I turned off the TV, and I was like, I'm going to have nightmares tonight. This is crazy. But I fell in love with that idea that, oh, my gosh, these TV shows are awesome. They build up to this thing. And then at the end, you, you're, you're completely baffled. We all love a little bit of uh, courtroom excitement and drama, don't we? It's something about the, the case that's presented and trying to figure out, are they innocent? Are they guilty? The evidence that's presented, there's something pretty exciting about it. And you realize that it's not just me, but it's almost a universal thing. You can tell by all of the law-related, court-related TV shows. It's not, I mean, it's like People's Court, yeah, Judge Judy, Divorce Court, all of these things. But then there's, there's dramas like L.A. Law and Criminal Minds and Ally McBeal back in the day. Uh, what's there one called? Suits, Boston Legal. There's a bunch of them out there. Night Court back in the day. Countless TV shows like that that have this courtroom as the, as the setting, and you're trying to figure out, did they do it? Who's guilty? Who's right? Who's not? 
There's something in us that loves these courtroom dramas. Unless, of course, if we're involved in it. If you're being brought up on charges, or if you're having to sue somebody, all of a sudden it's not that exciting. It's cool to be a bystander. It's cool to watch it on TV when you can turn it off when it gets a little bit too scary. But if you're the one involved in that court case, it's not all that exciting. In fact, it can be downright frightening. If you're guilty or if you're bringing up a charge and they rule against you, it's a high cost to pay. We love courtroom cases until we're the ones involved in it. This morning... I want to bring you into a courtroom case that may not be all that exciting for you, may not be all that exciting for me because this is our story, and this is our situation, and this is our case. It's not a case where we're bringing up a suit against somebody, but someone's bringing something against you and against me. Romans chapter 3, what's wrong with the world? We saw last week that It's that we we know that God is there, but we ignore him. We know that God is there, but we reject him. We know that God is there, but instead of choosing him, we choose to worship other things. And as a result, our relationships with people are busted because we're not getting the things that we want. Because these idols that we worship promise but cannot deliver. And in that void in our hearts, we fight, we strive, we quarrel. James says, the book of James, the reason we fight and quarrel is because we have desires that cannot be met within us in this life by the things that we're seeking after. That's what we saw last week. Today we're going to bring it a little bit closer to home, even more so as we enter into this courtroom case. Romans 3, we're just going to read for now verses 9 through 20, and then I'm going to hit on some other verses as we go along. But this is God's word spoken over all of humanity. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles, okay, basically Jews and non-Jews, that's all of humanity alike, are all under sin. As it's written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that Every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. This is God's word. And this is a harsh condemnation on the human condition here. And in this trial, there are three things that we want to look at. There is the charge against all of humanity There is the evidence against all of humanity supporting the charge, and then there's the verdict and the sentencing. The first thing that we see is the charge that's brought up against us. I don't know if you've ever been watching TV at night, and uh, you see these commercials. And it's interesting, right, especially here in Florida, you see a lot of commercials, a lot of billboards about lawyers, about law, and, and about trying to get justice. And really what our, our, our desire for justice is really not justice, it's for Revenge, right? Justice is tit for tat. It's an eye for an eye. But revenge is saying not only an eye for an eye, I'm going to take more than they took from me. And so you see attorney Dan Newland got me $1.5 million. For what? Because someone gave me a rotten sandwich. $1.5 million for a rotten sandwich. That's crazy. That's not justice. Right? It's above and beyond. But maybe you've seen these commercials. Uh, if you've experienced, you suffer from mesothelioma because of asbestos ingestion or something like that, then you are subject to money from the law courts and we're going to file a class action lawsuit. I don't know if you've seen, uh, <laughs> seen things like that before, uh, commercials like that. There's commercials where if you have uh, or, or a loved one has been uh, taking this kind of medication and you've suffered this kind of uh, side effects, then you are subject to be part of a class action lawsuit. It's basically a bunch of people getting together and we're saying, this guy did us wrong, therefore we're going to get money from them. What we have here is not a class action lawsuit where many against one. What we have is actually the reverse, where it's one person speaking out 
against all of humanity. And the person bringing up the charge is none other than God himself. What does it say? It, it says here in the middle of verse 9, are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. What's that mean? It says Jews, uh, if you're a Jew, then you're under sin. If you're a Gentile, means you're not a Jew. Okay, that covers all of humanity. It means all of us alike are under sin. So the Jews were the people who had the Bible. They thought they were religious. The Gentiles didn't have the Bible. The Jews looked at them, said those guys are wicked, the idolaters, the immoral, those people. He says it doesn't matter who you are. You're a Jew. You're not a Jew. All of you alike are under sin. And then it gets worse. It says there's no one righteous, not even one, okay, not even a single soul. All of us are indicted. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All of us have turned away. Together become worthless. Literally, that word means rotting milk that's good for nothing. Rancid milk, that's what the human condition has become. That's what's wrong with the world. We saw that last week. There's no one who does good, not even one. Are you kidding me? Not, there's not a single person who does good? What about, what about those of us who go out and, 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 and we take care of... Um, we take care of the, the ducks that got, uh, that got plastic wrap around their heads. Is that not a good thing that we do? What about those of us who, who, who volunteer on weekends and we go into hospital rooms and we, we sing songs to people or we check on them or we, we bring dogs and, and let the, the patients pet them? Is that not a good thing? What about Mookie Betts? Do you guys know? Mookie Betts is a baseball player for the Boston Red Sox. Right? He's in the World Series right now. World Series, the, one of the... the, the evil teams of the major leagues, uh, the Boston Red Sox are winning three games to one right now, and they may soon win the World Series. But Mookie Betts is he's a relatively good guy on that team. He's the most valuable player of the American League. He's great, excellent player. On Wednesday night, they were playing game two, and he did really well. He had three hits and helped the team to win. Now, the game was in Boston, so after the game, he went out, it was 30-degree weather. It's almost, it feels like 30 degrees out here today. That's why we're all late, because we had to, like Eugene said, we had to find our Uggs and get our thermal underwear and stuff like that. Uh, but 30 degrees in Boston is like, you know, 80 degrees here. So, it's, you know, it's a pretty cold night. Not too bad for them, but it's still cold. Mookie Betts at 1 a.m. was caught on Twitter, 1 o'clock, outside of the Boston Public Library, after a game, feeding homeless people. One in the morning, shopping cart filled with trays and trays of steak tips and chicken. He had a hoodie on, so nobody knew who he was. They didn't know that this is one of the best baseball players in the world, passing out food to people. He just did it anonymously. No one took pictures of him. But one reporter for the, I think it was the Boston Globe or New England Sports Network, whoever it was, recognized him, took a picture, posted it on Twitter. That's how I know. That's how you know. That's how the rest of the world knows. But no one else knew. And as soon as people started coming, he left, left the food with them, and then he walked out. You telling me that there's no one who does good? You know, as shocking as that might sound to you, and, and if you've been in church, you understand, well, goodness is not a, it's not a relative term. We're not good compared to other people. That's not what he's talking about. But for those of you who may be new to church, you might be thinking, are you kidding me? How can you say that there's no good people, no one who does good? That's crazy. As shocking as it is to you, it's even more shocking to the people that Paul was writing, to these Jewish people. Jewish people are like, hey, I get it, Paul. <laughs> those Gentiles, yeah, they don't have the word of God. Those guys are evil. You see, those, man, they do whatever they want to do. They kill, they steal, they make fun of people, they talk trash to other people, they're, they're malicious, they hate their parents. But you're not talking about us, Paul, because we got the word of God. We got the law in our hearts. We are moral. We are upright. We do it right. We know the Ten Commandments. But Paul says, check this, Jewish people. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. That means all of us who think we're religious people, we're pretty good people, he's like, you don't get it. If you think you're a pretty good person, you don't understand what the heartbeat of the Bible is saying. Because there's no one righteous, not even one. Not even one, not even one. There's no one who understands, and there's no one who seeks God. That's a pretty harsh claim here. The charge that God is bringing up is you and I have been committed as human beings, 
convicted of or brought up on charges of crimes against divinity, which lead to crimes against humanity. This is what God is saying. And all of us, according to God, are guilty as charged. Guilty? You kidding me? The reason why a lot of us don't think we're guilty is because we don't feel guilty. When we think of guilt, we think of something that we feel, oh my gosh, I feel guilty because I I cheated on that test and I I feel it, I can't live with myself. I feel guilty because I stole that shirt from TJ Maxx and and now I I can't ever get myself to put it on because I feel so guilty about it. A lot of times when we think of guilt, we think of what we feel. And these Jewish people weren't necessarily feeling all that guilty. What Paul is saying is guilt is not a subjective thing. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about an objective reality. He's saying, did you know that you can be guilty without ever feeling guilty? Did you know that? Has that ever happened to you when you're driving? (laughs) I read this the other day that red, white, and blue symbolizes freedom unless their lights behind you as you're driving. Then all of a sudden, it's not freedom. So you get pulled over by a cop. And the cop says to you, do you know why I pulled you over? And 90% of the time, we say, officer, I have no idea why you pulled me over. Whether we're telling the truth or not, we might say that. And some of the time, you might actually not know. I have no idea, officer. Did you know that your, uh, your registration is expired two months ago? I had no idea. Did you know that your taillight is out? Oh, I did not know that. One time I got pulled over. The officer said, do you have any idea why I pulled you over? I said, I have no idea, officer. He said, do you know what the speed limit is here? I said, I believe it's 55. He said, no, it's 45, and you're going 65. You're going 20 miles over the speed limit. I said, I'm so sorry. I totally, I I thought it was 55. He said, Mr. Kim, ignorance is not an excuse for guilt. You can be guilty without ever feeling guilty. And a lot of times, the reason we don't feel guilty is because we're comparing ourselves with other people. I'm not as bad as them. Hey, other people are going faster than me. You know what? I only cheated on a homework assignment. These people, they cheat on their exams. You know what? We're, yeah, okay, we may not be perfect, but these Gentiles, they're worse than us. Paul is saying God doesn't grade on a curve righteousness, there's no one righteous. Okay, understand this. Righteousness here is not a moral term. It is a legal term. Okay? It's not about morality. It's not about I think I did all right, I think I didn't do all right. He's not talking about morality here. He said set that aside. He's talking about legally. He said legally all of us are unrighteous. It's either you're righteous or you're not righteous. There's no gradations. There, it's not a spectrum. It's not like a, a wheel. It's either you're on or you're off. And he says every single one of us is unrighteous before God. We are not right before God. Because the standard of measurement is not each other. It's not the worst person I know. It's not even the best person that we know. Our standard against which we measure whether we're guilty or not, whether we're righteous or not, is none other than the holy, perfect, spotless, blameless, unblemished God of the universe. He holy in everything that he does is the rubric of measurement by which we determine whether we're guilty or innocent. And before him who is altogether perfect, every single one of us stands condemned as unrighteous in the sight of God. And the charge that God brings up is that every single person is guilty of committing a crime against the Godhead, in short, of sin. Every single person stands charged with committing a massive and heinous crime of treason against the God of the universe who loved us and made us for his glory. But we have abandoned him to worship lesser lovers and false gods and idols which could never satisfy. The first thing, guys, this is the charge over all of humanity, whether you think you're religious or non-religious. He says, here's our deal. For the non-religious, okay, maybe you understand that, but for the religious people, okay, the reason you're doing it is you're not doing it for God. You're doing it for yourself. You're doing it so that you could deal with your guilt, so that you could get to heaven, so that you could appease uh, the, the feelings of the flesh in order that maybe you'll be acceptable before God. It says you don't do goodness for its own sake. Goodness has no looking to our own merit 
or to be recognized. Goodness is goodness for its own sake. And he says, there's no one who does that good. No one. He says, okay, let's go a little bit further. You want to see some evidence? It's the second thing God brings up is he brings up evidence. Just as much, okay, just as much as sin in all of our lives has affected every person, he's saying it affects every part of every person as well. It affects every part of every person. Means it, it, here God brings up five pieces of evidence here, and he says an x-ray of the human condition. He brings up evidence to show the utter corruption of sin and the guilt lies in every part of our bodies. You know this as, uh, as a kid, as an adult. The theological term for this is called total depravity, that sin has influenced every faculty of our being. But we sing this as a children's song. When you sing this song, oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Because we know that our eyes are very prone to looking at things we ought not look at. The way that we look at people and we judge them. The way that we look at people and we look at their clothing and say, you know what, those guys, and we begin to think awful thoughts. We look at people and we look at them with lustful thoughts. We look at places or things. We look at at, at homes or automobiles or belongings or the million, billion dollar, mega billion dollar lottery winner and we begin to envy them or want what they have, covetousness. He says, be careful, little eyes, because your eyes can lead you into sin. But it's not the only verse. There's five verses. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear, because we can listen to and hear things that are toxic to our soul and that cause us to engage in sin. The truest form of evil is not when we necessarily engage in evil, but when good people do nothing about the evil that we hear and see and experience in life. It's not just our ears. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. Be careful, little feet, where you go. Right? There's more verses, and you could create a million different verses. Here God says, let me give you five exhibits as pieces of evidence to show how deeply infested we are by the stain of sin. Exhibit A, verse, uh, exhibit A in verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one, verse 11. There is no one who understands. Okay? Our minds have become affected by sin. You ever think a wrong thought? Ever, ever think a twisted thought? Ever think something? And, and the more we get involved in sin, you, you think of, of how when the depraved mind goes and, and runs its course, you think of people like those who commit crime, commit murder, commit robbery, whatever it is, assault, hurting people, right? That's a mind that has become depraved and they begin to think that what is wrong actually might be right or might actually be a good option for us. He said, exhibit A, your mind has been jacked up by sin. Exhibit B, he said, there is no one who seeks God. This is our hearts. Again, when he uses the language of seeking, it means to seek God for his own sake, not seeking God for your own benefit. Yeah, sure, all of us seek God in some way, but many of us seek God for our own benefit. Because I feel lousy, because I feel ashamed, because I feel afraid, because I need an answer to prayer, because I need a job, because I need finances. Whatever it is, we seek God, definitely, but oftentimes we're seeking his hand and not his face. We're seeking him for what he gives and not simply for the beauty, my gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. No one seeks God for his own beauty's sake. We seek him because we want something from him. Our hearts are affected. Exhibit C. Verse 12, all have turned away. Our wills have become turned away from God. Even though we know what we ought to do, we willfully abandon God. Last week, you see God, but we ignore him by the hardening of our hearts because of our wickedness. It's like a child who you know as a parent. You're calling your kid. They're sitting right there. Hey, Johnny. Hi, hey, Alfred. Hey, uh, come and wash your hands for dinner. And they act like they don't hear you. Johnny, Alfred, go wash your hands. I know you hear me. I know you hear me. I know you hear me. Come wash your hands. Come over here. Wash your hands. And instead of coming to you, they ignore you and they walk away. 
He's saying this is what happens when it says they have all turned away. The image is that we are running from a wild animal. That we see the God who's calling out to us and we see him like he's a wild animal. We run from him. A broken heart of a broken father as he pursues lost humanity. Exhibit D, it goes on. Verse 13, their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Exhibit D is our words, our conversations. Have any had a conversation that has never been tainted by the effects of sin? You've never said anything bad, nothing harmful, nothing hurtful, nothing deceitful, nothing slanderous, nothing gossiping. He's building a case to show this is the evidence against us. And then lastly, in verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. In our conflict with one another. We don't need to know. I, you know this. Okay, you see this in life. But God presses this a little bit. He says, this is where you are. This is the human condition. And with every crime, there's a motive. What's the motive here? Verse 18. There's no fear of God before their eyes. When we sin, in essence, what we're saying is, God, I don't care about you. I don't need you. I'm not afraid of you. I do whatever I want to do. Quite frankly, I will be my own God. This is sin. In the middle of the word sin is I. I will do what I want. No fear of God. And then, again, let's kind of twist this a little bit deeper here. God says, I not only have exhibits in the form of x-rays, but would you turn your attention, Jerry, to the screen? Not right now, because this would, this would be very painful for most of us. But whoever it is on trial, it's me, it's you, it's whomever. They say, this is the story now of their life on screen. And without you knowing, there's been surveillance placed on you in everything that you've ever done, every place you've gone, everything you did with every person that you did it with, all of that stuff is placed on screen. Not only that, through spiritual technology, they have subtitles to every whispered wish. Every thought that comes into your mind is played out as all this is being played out. The thoughts that you have that nobody else sees and then the motivations of your heart as you do the things that are good, your motivations are put up on the screen. I think they'll think I'm worth something now by me doing this. Maybe now people will respect me. Maybe now people will think that I can serve God. Maybe now, though, my parents will actually accept me. All of those things being put up onto the screen. And that's our life. And now... Who of us can stand before God and say, God, look at all that. Look at all this. I'm not bad. You're telling me there's no one who does good? What about me? The evidence is stacked against us. We are guilty as charged. And so we see that this is our reality. There's a charge. There's the evidence. So what's the verdict? So it gets thrown to the jury now. The jury is deliberating. Verse 19, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Here's what, we, here's what the Jews said. We've got the Bible. And because we've got the Bible, we're going to obey the Bible. We're going to obey the Bible. And what Paul is saying is, hey, guys, by your religiosity, by you obeying the Bible, you're not making yourself more righteous. By you obeying the Bible, you're realizing actually how unrighteous you are and how unable you are, how unable you are to live this out. The word of God was given to us to drive us to Christ. It was a mirror that shows us that our face is dirty. It's not a towel that can clean our face. A mirror simply reveals so that we run to the one who can actually help us. Because you see, in our lives, in our lot, in our situation, there's nothing that we can do in order to make ourselves right before God. How good do you have to be? 
How good do you have to be to say, you know what, I think I can stand before God. If the best of us in here could only commit three sins a day, if the best of us in here could only commit three sins a day, and I promise you that the most of us have committed way more than three even this morning, and it's only 11.35 in the morning. The best of us could only commit three sins a day. That means in a given day, okay, you judge someone because they are not here on time for worship service, or I sang a song of worship today, and I didn't mean it with all of my heart. During greeting time, I could have greeted somebody else, but I didn't do it. I didn't want to show the love of God. That's three right there. I lied about some of the things that I got into a fight with my mom. I got into a fight with my, my parents. I got into a fight with whomever it was on the way to worship this morning. That's, so say the best of us in here, three sins. Okay, the best of us, three sins. You multiply that over a year, that means at uh, the lesser end, and again, this is, you would have to be the most impeccably moral person to commit only a thousand sins in a year. Okay, here you are, a thousand sins in a year. And then for some of us who are even worse than that, that's 2,000 sins a year, 3,000, 10,000 sins a year, and multiply that by how many years you've been alive. Here we've got 50,000 sins. 15,000, however many thousand sins you've got, you bring that before God and say, you know what, God, what do you mean there's no one who does good? Look at my life. How foolish of us to think that we could think that we're actually good in the eyes of God, that my good works can get me into heaven. How much good do you need to do? You need to be absolutely, utterly perfect. The jury deliberates. We've come to a decision. They bring it before the judge, and the courtroom falls silent because we know. I mean, come on. By virtue of us knowing ourselves, by virtue of seeing the x-rays, by virtue of us watching that video, we know we're guilty, and the wages of sin is death. This is the human condition that every one of us condemned not only to death in life, that's what we get for sin, but death for all eternity because we've sinned against an eternally worthy God. Punishment must fit the crime. I commit a crime against you, I kill you, you can kill me, that's fine. But if you commit a crime against one who is infinitely worthy, then the punishment has to fit the crime, infinite punishment. That's our life. That's us. But then in this crazy plot twist, all the evidence against you and me, God declares not guilty. <laughs> what in the world? Have my sinful ears deceived me yet again? Like how? It, how? Well, if you were to kind of take a bystander's perspective and look at this, this would make you very upset. Because if you know someone has done wrong, if you know that someone is guilty, for the judge to say not guilty, that doesn't make you, oh, I'm so happy for them. No, you get angry, don't you? Because you want justice to be. People who are perpetrating terrorist acts, open, shut, easy. They're guilty. The judge says not guilty. Don't you? Justice must be served. How can it be? Someone hits your car and, and the judge says, hey, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's all good. Just go. You're, I know we have, we have video camera evidence that you did it, but, but don't worry about it. What do you say as the one who's been offended? You're like, that means you belittled my car. That means I mean nothing to you. Hey, you know what? You slaughtered the life of another person, but don't worry about it. Their husband will be okay. Their wife will be okay. That means to them, they're hearing the life of this person meant nothing. So what happens when God against whom we are wronged, there's no punishment for the wrongdoer? Does that negate the worth of who God is? The punishment was, it, it has to be enacted against a crime that's clear. In our Becoming a Child of God class, we tell this story of this village long ago, a 
village that was ruled by a great ruler. And everyone in that, in that village loved this ruler because he was the most upright and just leader. Every law he upheld so that there was no crime within that, within that community. But they also loved the fact that not only was he, was he morally upright and a just judge, but he was so in love with his subjects that every day he would visit each of them and he would give them gifts and he would hug them and he would tell them great things about them and, and they knew that he was for them. They knew that this is why society functions so well because he's a just judge, but he's also the most loving ruler that they could ever have. There was this one rule in particular, one law in particular that everybody knew that if this law gets broken, this is a terrible crime. That if this law gets broken, then the punishment would be 39 lashes on their back, which would lead a person, 40 lashes, which would lead a person to death. And so for many years, during the 50 years of this king's reign, this ruler's reign, uh, no, there was not much sin to be punished, no crime to be punished. But one day there was a murmuring in the village and, and they said, someone has committed the unspeakable crime. And all of a sudden, people are up in arms about it. Go, oh my gosh, does the ruler know, the ruler know, the ruler knows, and they find out, and then they start talking about, what do you think he's going to do? As word gets out, they realize that indeed the crime has been committed. And they bring him in before the whole entire community, veiled in a cloak so that no one can see the identity of this person. And people are saying, will he sentence this person to the 40 lashes or in his love will he let them go what will he do and as they debate i say he, there's no way he can he has to uphold the law he has to or else our society our, our culture our kingdom would go to chaos if he didn't punish the crime oh, i don't think he's going to do it i don't think he's going to do it because he loves us so much he loves everyone so much and just as the sentence is about to be reached, they take the veil off the person and they realize that the perpetrator is the ruler's own mother. Now what will he do? Now the debate hits an even more feverish pitch. There's no way. His mom is, she's going to die if she gets whipped with even five lashes, let alone 40. What is he going to do? This great dilemma. He reads the evidence and he says, I find this woman to be guilty of the crime and she must be punished. So when I say begin, I want you to take the whip and begin lashing 40 times over her. And he comes up off of the judge's seat and he takes off his robe and he kneels down next to his mother and he covers his mother up with his own body and he says, now you may begin the lashes. And he takes the punishment that the crime deserved, taking it upon himself because of love. Where's the punishment for you and for me? Where's the punishment? The same dilemma. At the cross, Jesus Christ, the only one of whom it could ever be said, he's not guilty stood condemned at the cross. The Father looked upon him because Jesus lived the perfect life, the righteous life that every one of us failed to live. And then at the cross, he took the punishment that every single one of us deserved to receive. And at the cross, all of the wrath of God against sinful humanity, me and you, was placed upon the infinite and perfect Son of God so that Jesus took our place and was beaten and was destroyed and was crucified at Calvary in order that we who were sinners could go free. He says in verse 21, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It's not about what we do. It's not about our goodness. It's not about our efforts. It's not about our church going. It's not about our morality. It's simply about faith in Christ, that it is possible for you and I to be considered righteous in the sight of God because of nothing that we've done, simply because of grace and because of mercy and because of love. It's not that God hated us and wanted to kill us and Jesus said, no, Father, stop. Love them because of me. It says in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. 
It was a demonstration of perfect love. It was a demonstration of perfect justice. It was a demonstration of perfect righteousness, apart from which we would have paid the ultimate and infinite punishment through not only our death, but an eternity apart from God. This is why the gospel is good news, because it's not about what you and I have to do. It's about what Christ has done for us that you can be justified in the sight of God. Here's what justified means. It doesn't only mean forgiven. It means that you're counted as if you had never sinned before. Do you understand? that He doesn't just say, I forgive you. He says, I look upon you as if you had never sinned. That's a, a, a husband who countlessly cheats on his wife and goes away from her. It's one thing for her to say, you know what? I forgive you, okay, I forgive you, I forgive you, I, I don't hold it against you anymore, but would she invite him and welcome him back into the home to be with the family, to be with the kids? I don't know if she would do that, that's up to her, but forgiveness just means I don't hold it against you anymore. To be justified means I look upon you as if you had never done that. I look upon you as if you had been the most faithful husband that the world could ever know. That's how I see you, and that's how God sees you and me. Not just, oh, you're this crummy, awful person. You should be ashamed. You should bow your head and cower in fear. But, oh, I forgive you. It's like saying you've got a daughter who wants to marry this dude, and he's guilty of all these crimes, and the judge says, you know what? You've got a great lawyer, so I'm going to say you're not guilty. Do you say to your daughter, oh, Praise God, he's not a criminal. Go ahead, marry him. Absolutely not. But justification says we look upon him as if he'd never sinned. Is that even possible in this life, in this world? But that's what God says about you and me. He says, listen, I look at you as if you'd never sinned before so that whatever it is that the Son of God deserved, all that is given to you and everything that you deserve, I placed on the Son of God. You see, the one thing this trial didn't have, it didn't have a defense because we had no defense before God. Jesus becomes our defense, our one defense, our only defense, our righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. Could we ever live apart? from this God, that we can now, because of Christ, possess by faith what I could not earn, an all-surpassing gift of righteousness. It causes this author, Paul, to say, you know what, everything I once held dear, all of my record, all of my training, all of my goodness, all of my righteousness, all of my legalistic perfection in following the law, all of my, 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 my status, all of these things, all I once held dear, built my life upon, all this world reveres and wars to own, all I once thought gain. I've counted loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have willingly given up everything so that I might have him. Because he did that for me, giving up everything so that he might have us. This is the gospel of Christ. And it's this message that has changed the lives of men like Martin Luther. It's changed the lives of the entire church to separated Protestant Reformation because of this teaching of justification by faith alone. It's changed many a life and it's still doing that today. It's the gospel. Let's believe it. Let's breathe it. Let's live it. Justification changes everything. Makes us bold and confident before God so that we can say, God, here I am at your feet in my brokenness yet complete in you. Lord, we need you. Let's make that our plea. Let's make that our prayer. This is our story. Let's pray together. Do you identify more with a Gentile who's been running away from God? Maybe you, you do. That you've thrown yourself, indulged yourself into a life of immorality, trying to be popular, fit in with the right crowd, drinking with people, you're doing drugs, maybe you're uh, engaging in things, maybe it's not with others, maybe it's just by yourself. 
I know, we know, we've been there too. Maybe others of us, we're not lost in rejecting God because we're so bad. Others of us are lost and we're rejecting God because we think we're good. Why do I need someone to die for me? I'm a good person. I'm moral. I'm upright. I ain't kill anybody. I come to church every week or almost every week. I volunteer. I give my time. I feed homeless people. I'm not a bad person. I think at the end of the day, my goods outweigh my bads. Paul is saying in the message of Scripture throughout, he said, you can be just as lost in your goodness as you are in someone else's badness. What keeps you from believing that you need a Savior? Because the x-ray is clear. It's for all of us here, guys. And again, I would every week rather over-diagnose the sin condition in your life than to underdiagnose and to make assumptions that all of us are going to be in heaven when, according to the Bible, we're not. I don't want to trick you or fool you into thinking that just because you showed up today that you're going to be in heaven with God. All of us stand guilty and condemned. The default is not that you're going to go to heaven because you showed up because your parents go to church because you identify as a Christian. The default is for all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And everyone who calls in the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. So today, let's call in the name of the Lord if you have not already. Say, Jesus, I need you. Come into my life. Be my Savior. For those who've made that confession, and right now, in this moment, you're trusting Christ and nothing else for your salvation. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that this is me. This is my story. Not that I was bad, now I'm good, but I was dead, but you made me alive. So there's no room for me to boast. Spend a few moments in prayers of response recommitting your heart to living in light of the gospel, trusting in Christ in light of the gospel. But let's pray. Let's talk to God. He treats you if you are in Christ as if you had never sinned so you can come and I can come boldly into the presence of God. Yeah, let's bring our hearts before him. Let's pray for a minute or so and then I'll pray for us and then we'll continue to worship the Lord in response. Let's pray together. If you pray quietly, you can. If you want to pray aloud, you can do that as well. If you want to stand, if you want to sit, whatever you want to do, but let's respond to God in this moment, just honestly and earnestly. What we do in this next minute is crucial. Let's let this, the seeds of this message sink into our hearts as we water it in prayer right now. Let's spend a couple moments doing that before I pray for us. for anyone who wants to respond and say, you know what? I've never put my trust in Jesus Christ to be my Savior, to be my Lord. In a couple moments, I'm just going to say, if that's you, just raise your hand where you are. Let's take another half minute to really think about that, pray about that. Are you presently trusting Jesus Christ for your salvation? Let's pray, reflect for another 30 seconds or so, and then I want to Let's give this invitation for us to respond. As we continue to pray with our eyes closed, today and you feel like I felt like the Lord was really speaking to me today maybe in the past and I haven't put my trust in Jesus Christ I've come to church yeah maybe I've even gone to Bible study maybe I was even 
baptized. But I don't know. I haven't fully surrendered my life, put my trust in Jesus Christ. I've been trying to earn my own way. But I need Jesus to be my Savior. If there's anyone like that in here with our eyes closed, if there's anyone like that, can you just raise your hand from where you are? I'm not going to put anyone on blast here and have you come up or anything. Thank you. See, you can put your hand down. I need Jesus in my life. I follow him. that God who promised will be faithful. Father in heaven, thank you that you have loved me. You have loved me and you have pursued me. And even though I've run from you, sometimes running to bad things, sometimes running to good things, but ultimately using these as a way for me to not need to deal with the fact that I'm a sinner, but I confess today that I need you and I know that I need you more than I ever have. I thank you that you took my place sending your son to die for me so that I could be set free. I pray that you would come into my life to save me, to be the forgiver of my sins, that you would take my punishment and I would gain your blessing so that I could be a child of God. Thank you so much for loving me I love you, Jesus, because you've loved me first, and you love me still, and you love me always, and you will never, ever let go of me. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Again, if that was your prayer today, whether you raised your hand or not, I want to ask that you talk with me or talk to your friend who brought you or talk to your house church shepherd or talk to someone about how we can uh, you know, follow up and, and really help this to become something that uh, bears fruit within our lives. Okay. Let's stand together as we continue to worship, as we give uh, our offerings and bring his tithes.